The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we come now to the third Sunday of unpacking the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples and has been preserved and passed down, something that we know by memory. And we come today after learning to speak to our father, our dad, an intimate relationship that we all share with one another, whom we call upon to be holy, to be true to his character. And we now ask that your kingdom come. It, it struck me as I was sitting listening to the prayer that, you know, the forms that we sometimes use to teach, I think of the ACTS prayer, where it's the acronym for, you start with adoration, then confession, thanksgiving, then supplication. Jesus obviously never heard of this, and he just launches right into supplication. He blows through everything and begins to implore thing after thing after thing of God. As the prayer starts with these imperatives, we address our Father and we say, be holy, make your kingdom come, give us our daily bread, forgive us. We ask, we ask, we ask, knowing that we can do nothing to fulfill these in our lives on our own. And so with that, knowing that we have no power then to bring this kingdom about, we have to ask ourselves, what kingdom actually is God going to bring? Because this language of a kingdom, it feels ancient, or perhaps it feels like something out of a fantasy book. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, they would have had a very clear expectation in their minds of what this kingdom would mean. It would have instantly triggered ideas, images, stories, an expectation. It would have made them excited. For at the time of Jesus' ministry, the people of Israel had an intense desire for a restoration of kingdom a restoration of the kingdom of David. Their idea of kingdom was born out of a political ideology married with their faith. For currently, they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. The Roman Caesar declared himself their God, the one who brought peace to the known world. And they were never free of that image of Caesar and Rome being their power. For right next to the temple that King Herod built for the Jews was a Roman fortress. Because the Romans knew that if the Jews were going to get all worked up for independence, it was going to start in the religious heart of Jerusalem. So they had to be ready to act. So for the disciples, they were expecting freedom. But freedom from the Romans. They wanted a nation independent of foreign influence, of foreign religion. They wanted a nation ruled by a Jewish king in Jerusalem where they could live in accordance to their law and only their law, where they didn't have to balance their desire to live in the law after Moses, but also to submit to Roman law. And even after Jesus' death, even after all that he had done in his ministry, after he had been crucified and rose three days later, after he spent 40 additional days teaching with his disciples and those that followed prior to his ascension, 
his disciples looked at him and asked. After all these amazing things had happened in his ministry as Jesus had preached and healed, they looked at him, and this is in Acts 1 verse 6. It says, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Their expectation was for the present, for the now, for the immediate restoration of this political kingdom, of the Davidic dynasty. It was locked in their glory and in, their, in the glory of the past, of the idealism that they crafted around what the kingdom of God meant. And they thought, for sure, for sure now, Jesus has died, he has defeated death, he has given, he has spurned the Romans, spurned the ruling priestly class, he has defied them at every possible turn, surely now this was his moment. What better time to restore an earthly kingdom when you show your enemies that you actually can't be killed? They felt that the good old days were coming back. But of course, like the past, for all of us, we do tend to look at it with rose-colored glasses because the past of Israel, it wasn't perhaps so glorious. Because Israel, when they entered the promised land, God was originally their ruler. They had no need of a king or anyone apart from Yahweh. But they rebelled. They desired their own king. And in the end, they ended up exiled for that cycle of rebellion and redemption. Rebellion, redemption, rebellion, redemption eventually came to an end where God said, enough is enough. Exile is for you. Off to Babylon you go. But God was gracious and brought them back. But they did not come back and have their own king. They did not come back independent. And for the next 400 years, they remained under the thumb of one political empire after another. They wanted total restoration. They wanted a political power. They wanted law and order and rule and independence according to their religious ideology. And this is a thread that is woven throughout the history of the Christian church as well. We are not immune to it. We can look and pick certain moments. We could say that when Constantine, the emperor of the Western Roman Empire, brought the church into the public light, he made it legal to practice Christianity, and eventually the church rose to a position of immense prominence in the political sphere. It interacted with the politics of the day and eventually becoming the strongest voice in guiding the cities of the Roman Empire. I'm sure at that moment for Christians who had long lived under the impression of the Roman Empire, they felt that, yes, the kingdom is coming. We can step out in safety. We could, we could build a church for the first time in 300 years instead of hiding in basements. We have an emperor on the throne that affirms Christ as Lord. That must have been amazing and exciting for them. There was the opportunity to now create a Christian kingdom. And it is that Christian kingdom that perhaps seemed to be of the utmost focus. For if we look at the Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, the Russian Empire, the Crusades, all these nations and empires of the world have sought to rule in a Christian manner, to say that they are accepting the mantle 
of ruling on Christ's behalf, to raise up their empires, their desires for power under the guise of fulfilling that call for the coming kingdom. And it's actually still an idea that is much closer than we might care to admit. For the colonization of the Americas was carried out with a similar mentality, that popular Spanish saying, for glory, gold, and God. The European powers that started to land on the shores of the Americas some 500 years ago, they came and they saw a people that did not know Christ, a people that were living outside of the kingdom as they saw it, and they were determined to bring the kingdom into their lives at any cost. Embracing the age-old mentality of Charlemagne, convert or die. And it's this truly horrible idea that there can be no room for anyone within the kingdom of God that does not adhere to your particular brand of Christianity or your cultural understanding that led to the legacy of those residential schools. This mixing of religion and culture together to decide that it was the European way that was right and forcing out anyone that was not a part of it. It feels like a strong departure from what the kingdom of God is meant to be. But it became enwrapped in politics, in culture. The idea that if we had a Christian king and Christian laws, that this was the kingdom. And even in recent years, we may bemoan the loss of Christian dominance in the Western society, feeling that in years back, the kingdom of God was more keenly realized when we had a full slate of Christian politicians defending our beliefs. Looking at the legality of abortion or homosexuality, people may feel that we have lost. But I'd ask you to just check that thought. Because if we look back in time when Christianity was the dominant religion, when people were assumed to be Christian and that society was assumed to be Christian, I would ask, who was that kingdom good for? The answer is a surprisingly narrow group of people. Unfortunately, people that look really only like me. We become so enchanted by this idea of kingdom and of dominance and of rule that we lose the idea and the sight of what God's kingdom is really about. By trying to push for political dominance, by trying to push for a monogamous Christian culture as we see, we embrace the same tragedy of Adam and Eve in the garden. Not being satisfied with God as God, with his rule as his rule, but desiring to be like him and to create society and culture in our own image instead of co-creating along with him. We desire to do things that we see as being kingdom ethics. We want to go it alone. We want to make things like the other nations be like them. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what is our expectation? What are we really asking God to make manifest? Well, the first is that it's not ours. Your kingdom come. It is not about building our own kingdoms here, our own sense of strength and security, creating a Christian society as we understand it to be. It begins with surrender. Let go the idea of rule. Turn it over to God. And what's more, it's not something far away. 
both in time and space. The kingdom of God is not locked up in heaven. We are unable to reach it, and we are simply down here where there is no kingdom saying, God, bring it now. It's certainly going to come in this dynamic final fashion in the end times when Christ's second coming, it will be fully realized, but we still have glimpses now. For the petition, your kingdom come. It's not a simple request. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's a demand of God to bring his kingdom now. It is not something that we hope for in the future. It can be here, in this place, in this time, today. And that's the kingdom that Jesus began to inaugurate and usher in at the beginning of his ministry. For in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we see that after John, this is John the Baptist, was put into prison, Jesus went on into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. For after Jesus has been baptized in the river Jordan, after he's been tested and tempted in the desert by the devil, he comes out declaring this good news. The time has come. In Greek, there are two different words for time. There is chronos, which is more of an extent of time. It's a bit more abstract, long in its thinking, spanning great amounts of time. But Jesus comes and he says, the time has come. The kairos has come. In this kairos time, it is more of an occasion. It is fixed in time. It is definite, something that we can look to. Kairos is more the time on the clock. The kingdom is now. The kingdom has reached an occasion, a moment and this requires a response. It is not something distant off, but it is here and now, and we must, as Jesus says, because it is here, repent and believe the good news. So what kind of kingdom is Jesus inaugurating? What kind of kingdom requires repentance and belief? When our normal understanding of kingdom and government is perhaps more based on submission or patriotism, taxes... But if we look to this kingdom as a coming moment, an occasion, we can look at the ministry of Jesus and see what kind of kingdom it is. For when we look at Jesus' teachings, his actions, all that he said and did in his time on earth, we see that he is presenting us moments to better understand what this kingdom is. Jesus healed the sick. He reached out and touched lepers, people that were ostracized from society, pushed to the outskirts. He reached out and touched and healed. He came alongside those that were suffering from bodily ailments. He fed the hungry. On two recorded occasions in his ministry, as he's teaching out in the desert, and the people are too far from town to go and get something to eat, and perhaps many of them are just too poor to buy food, Jesus provides enough bread that there is even some left over. His generosity knows no bounds. And who did he spend his time with? He didn't spend his time rubbing shoulders with the elite of society, dining in palaces, hobnobbing with the religious elite. He enjoyed community with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, 
people that were considered the lowest of the low by the Jewish society for being unclean, unworthy, for being traitors to the Jewish faith by working for the empire. He reached out to Gentiles, the absolute worst unclean, who if you incidentally bumped into a Gentile in the street, you had to go home and wash yourself because you were ritually unclean. We see in the story of the Good Samaritan, a man beaten on the side of the road. And the Levite and the priest, they crossed to the other side of the street to stay away from something so unclean, someone that they cannot be around. But Jesus went down into the dirt and the mud with the poor, the sick, the unworthy, the outcasts. And he spent time and met with them. It is in these moments where Jesus chose between doing what was popular with what was socially acceptable. Instead, he showed us what the kingdom is about by choosing grace and mercy, compassion and love. He interpreted the religious law of the day in a way that empowered the poor and the marginalized and made way for the outsider to come in. He opened a door so wide that had long been closed. And in showing us this way of moving forward, of reaching out to the sick, the lost, the lonely, he showed us that the kingdom is not a political state. For Jesus had no desire to be crowned king on earth during his ministry. It was something bigger. It was something deeper. It was more impactful than it transcended the borders of Israel. It transcended culture, language. And we see this after the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. The gospel message spreads out to all tribes and tongues and is taken to all corners of the empire, embracing all those who receive the message, repent, and believe. We could just flip through the gospels. We could pick any parable or teaching of Jesus and come to a better understanding of what the kingdom is, but I want to settle on his banquet narrative where a master prepares a great feast and he sends his servant out to invite all his friends to come and eat with him. But of course, they make up excuses why they can't come. They've bought oxen, they've bought land, they've got married, they have no time to come to their friend. So instead, he invites the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the lame, the people living on the sides of the streets. They may come in. So when we ask God, make your kingdom come, knowing full well that it is not our kingdom, that it is not something that we are creating here and now in our political state, we are instead saying, God, your kingdom will be realized because you are sovereign, you are powerful, and you have the capacity to make it so. And we acknowledge that he's doing it already. And when we ask God, make your kingdom come, we ask that he might show us how his kingdom is already being realized, how God is already at work, and how we might participate and be a part of it. Because the kingdom of God is coming in that kairos time, because it is an occasion, it is a moment, it is happening here and now, presently, this coming kingdom, we ask God to show us the daily ways in which we might participate. 
because we recognize that in society, nothing is neutral. Within this space, in this time, in these four walls on a Sunday morning, as we go out into work, into school, into our community events, our sports teams, our family lives, our friends, nothing is neutral. Everything is either fallen into sin or being redeemed for the kingdom of God. And so it is our prayer as we ask God's kingdom coming that he would show us where it is moving out of sin into redemption and how we might participate in what is being redeemed by Christ through the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God comes in our everyday actions, in our everyday choices prompted by the Spirit. When you tell the truth, the kingdom comes. When you reach out to that lonely person at work or at school that seems to be all alone or pushed out by the popular crowd, the kingdom is come. When you help out your neighbor, whether it's raking their leaves, buying them groceries, driving them to the hospital, God's kingdom come. When we change our buying habits to invest in a more sustainable future that combats climate change, that is the kingdom come. When you take time to learn about truth and reconciliation with our First Nations, Métis, and Inuit neighbors, and act on it. When you stand up to systemic injustice in our society, God's kingdom is coming. And that is because this is a kingdom built on selfless sacrifice, on laying down of individual rights for the sake of others. For Christ perfectly embodied this message of the kingdom when he died for our sins. He certainly had the power When they came to arrest him, he said he could call forth 12 legions of angels, half the strength of the Roman Empire in an instance. But instead, instead of using his power and authority for dominance and conquest, he suffered unimaginable humiliation and abuse, laying down all his power and his right to rule for our sake. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are asking God to show us in our lives how we might embody that same sacrifice, how we might pick up our cross and follow the way of Christ. That this kingdom, this kingdom that requires repentance and belief in this good news, requires constant sacrifice for others, laying down all that we would seek to build for our own benefit and our own ambition, so that God, whose name truly is holy, will be glorified by living out this gospel message of Christ's sacrifice. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. God Almighty, we confess once again that there are times where we have tried to rule as we see fit. It is our prayer that in this coming week, your spirit would take any notion of self-serving rule 
any broken idea of what your kingdom means and to reshape it into an idea that conforms to the pattern of the cross. God Almighty, we pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit, sensitive to the ways in which your kingdom is coming here and now, a sense of confidence and hope that even though we look around the world and see sometimes nothing but pandemic, environmental degradation, injustice, that we can see the hope that your kingdom kindles in our hearts, in the hearts of those around us. Inspire us, God, with your kingdom coming into our world, knowing that we can do nothing to bring it in of our own. We relinquish control, content, happy, joyful, excited that your kingdom comes by your power alone. God Almighty, we thank you. Amen.